It was a, a night like just about any other night for a young couple in a city called Ephesus. And as the sun had just set and they had put their two little children to bed and, and tiptoed out of that part of the house, they came over to where they had a table and a couple of chairs and they sat down together. And they looked at each other with bewilderment. This is not the first time they were going to have a conversation like this. It certainly wouldn't be the last time they were going to have a conversation like this because their life was in upheaval in a very real sense. And as they put their children to bed and sat down together to talk about it, um, there was a few things they were sure of. They were sure that this friend who had told them about the message that he had heard from a man named Paul about another man named Jesus was true. They were, they were amazed when they heard the truth of how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and how he rose again, defeating death on our behalf. And, and for some reason, a reason they could not explain or understand, when they heard that message, there was something in their heart that just knew it was right. And for the first time, they had clarity on that day after all that they had seen in terms of the different kinds of idolatry and the witchcraft and the sorcery and all of the sensuality that was offered in their community and that was all around them in their culture. And, and finally on that day when they heard about Jesus, they had clarity for the first time in their lives. And so they knew for sure that what the claims of the preachers about Jesus were true. They also knew that they were 100% committed. They, they had already decided there's no turning back. In fact, just that afternoon, they had had their parents over, and they had explained to their parents about this decision they had made to become Christ followers. And to say the least, the conversation did not go pleasantly. The parents told them they were nuts, that they were crazy, that this was just some sect, it was some cult. They didn't need to be a part of it. They, they're going to get... They're going to get um, uh, shunned by people in their community. If they make this public, they better keep it quiet. And their parents left angry. And they sat at the table that night. And they said, listen, we're convinced it's true. And we're not turning back. But how in the world do we do this? He made his living as a silversmith. Making idols. Now he's out of a job. How in the world do we do this thing called Christianity? How do we walk with God? We hear people telling us to walk with God, but we have no idea what that looks like. We're all in, but we have no idea where to go. We have no idea what to do. And it was the next morning that they got word. A letter had come from Paul. They would all be gathering at a home on Sunday to worship. And when they got together to worship, Timothy was actually going to stand up in front of them and he was going to read the inspired words of God that had come from the Apostle Paul, a letter to them about what it means to be a Christian, how great it is to be a Christian, and how we actually do it. And we have been blessed enough to sit in on that meeting. We have been blessed enough because God has sustained his word and protected it for us and given it to us that we get to open our Bibles today to the book of Ephesians. That's a subtle clue. That we get to open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians today and we get to sit in and listen 
as Timothy reads the words of Paul that came from the Holy Spirit himself. And God is going to address for us this question that they had 2,000 years ago that so many of us have today. When we say, I believe all those things we sang in the song. I know it's true. I am convinced in my heart of hearts that Jesus lives within me and he has changed my life. But I got to tell you, every day I go off into a world that does not operate that way and I don't understand how to do this. And Paul writes to us and he says, not only am I going to fill you in on all the great things that God has done for you, but I'm going to give you the so what as well. So take your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So, well, we should stop there. (laughs) Because you can't begin with so, right? So is a terrible beginning. You could begin with in the beginning. That's a good beginning. You could begin with uh, um, once upon a time. That's a good beginning. You could begin with, come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, right? That's a good beginning. But but you can't begin with so, and I've been telling you this over and over as we've been going through the book of Ephesians. You can't begin with so because it refers to context that you're not going to have unless you look backwards, right? So let me just remind you a little bit of the context before we read what comes after the so. The context in the first three Uh, chapters of Ephesians is him telling us how amazing it is that God took us who had no hope, no way to save ourselves, no relationship with him, no eternal life, no spiritual life, no power to change that. And he took we who were orphans and made us children of the king. And he tells us all about that in the first three chapters about what it means to be adopted by the king and to be given new life. He tells us it's all by grace. And he gives us all that in the first three chapters But then I told you this, and I'm going to keep telling you this. Once we got to chapter 4, the whole tone changes because in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it is so fun to stand up here and preach this stuff. In the first three chapters, it is so easy to stand up and go, let me tell you about the grace of God. You don't have to be good enough. He's good enough on your behalf. You can be saved, set free from your sin. God has a plan for your life, so he's adopted you and made you his child. Isn't that great? And all God's people said right? It's awesome. I love that stuff. But we got to chapter four, Paul starts telling us, now I'm going to stick my finger in your chest and I'm going to insist that some things in your life change. And I got to preach that part too. And so as I've been saying to you the last few weeks, if you're mad, don't be mad at me. You can send all your hate mail to jesuschrist.com. I'm sure he's happy to hear about it, but he's going to get in our face again today, and he's going to tell us this Christian life is more than just accepting a theological truth. It's more than just joining a church. It's more than just putting a bumper sticker on your car and wearing a new religious label. It's about a transformed life. And guys, it's not a bad thing that he confronts us with this. Because this is the abundant life Jesus has been talking about. This is what he has in mind. Let's go back to verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. 
being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Let's just stop there. This is some really straightforward, frank, frankly, pretty harsh language. As he describes these people who were without Jesus, who he calls Gentiles, so don't get confused by the term Gentile. Throughout most of the Bible, the term Gentile means not Jew. But as we get into Paul's later letters, he uses the term often to describe non-Christians. And so he's writing to a non-Jewish community there in Ephesus. These people are almost all saved out of paganism. And so he's calling uh, lost people Gentiles as opposed to Christians. Make sense? And he describes those Gentiles, and as he describes them, he uses very, very strong language. He talks about their minds being futile. He talks about their hearts being darkened and hardened and their understanding being darkened. He accuses them of ignorance. He calls them callous and sensual. And he says they practice every kind of impurity. I mean, he is not pulling any punches here. This is, this is harsh. This is what he's saying about their neighbors and their friends and the people that live all around them. And I just want to take a second before we go any further with this to speak to anybody who's here today who's not yet become a Christian. If, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here visiting and you're, you're here investigating the claims of Jesus and you want to know more about it, I'm really glad you came. But I'm going to just have to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to just have to ask you to give me the benefit of a doubt for a little while. Because right now, if I was an unbeliever and I read those verses and this, this guy standing up in the pulpit said those kind of things about me, I would pretty much close up my notes and decide this is the time for me to exit if I'm going to be treated with such disrespect. I want you to understand something. There's not an ounce of disrespect in Paul's voice when he writes this. There's not an ounce of disrespect in my voice when I teach it. He's actually describing the situation that every single one of us found ourselves in before that amazing grace was poured out upon us. So if you're a person who tends to look down upon lost people and judge them and shake your head and wag your finger and all that kind of stuff, I'm hoping that the more you hang out at Grace Fellowship, the more your heart softens toward people who don't know Jesus. Because every one of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, Every one of us fit this description before we knew Christ. These people just didn't get it. And it's as if Paul is saying that there's something wrong with their minds. He says their mind is futile in verse 17. Their understanding is darkened. So he's actually calling them ignorant. And you go, man, that is really, really harsh. How can he say that? Well, I want you to, to just leave a finger there in Ephesians 4, but flip back maybe five books to the left. You're going to find the book of Romans. And I want you to go to Romans chapter 1, and I want to give Paul a chance to explain himself in a little bit more depth here. And we're going to pick this up in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Okay, so he's beginning his argument about people who he says suppress the truth. That is, they push away the truth. They reject the truth. There are people, says Paul, 
who reject the truth in their own unrighteousness. Not wanting to change their own lives, they say, I don't want to hear that. If that works for you, that's great, but that's not my truth. They reject the truth. And he says that these people who reject the truth um, are without excuse because God has made them aware of him inside their hearts. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, every one of us is born with a, heart, uh, with a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God fits in. And people will do anything and everything to try to fit something in that hole and fill it up, but nothing fits there except for God. Every one of us is born with a knowledge that we're created by a creator, and then we begin to rebel against him. But he's made it evident to us. But if that wasn't enough, look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So it's not just an inner knowledge that they have, but he says if they will just look around, all you have to do is look up at the stars and you go, hmm, there's someone bigger than us. All you have to do is, is look at the, at the wonder of life and, the, and a child that grows in a mother's womb and then is born and grows into a full-fledged adult and you go, wow, there's someone bigger than us. It doesn't take a genius to look at all of the incredible design in creation and go, there's clearly got to be a creator if there's this much creation. It doesn't take a genius and yet, those who deny God suppress that truth. They say, I don't, I don't want to see what's there. And they do it in unrighteousness. And because of that, verse 20 says, they're without excuse. Now, I'm not supposed to be preaching through Romans 1, so let me hurry along. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So as they say no to God, as they push God away, their foolishness increases and their heart becomes darker and they can't understand. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Listen, any archaeologist, any anthropologist will tell you that there has never been a culture discovered throughout all of human history that was not incurably religious. Everybody's religious. And if they don't know the one true God, then they find someone or something to be a God. And he says they'll even go so far as to take what God has made like a tree and carve it into a statue and worship the statue. And what is the statue of? A bear, a dog, a bird, something that God has created. They choose to worship the creation rather than worshiping the creator. And their hearts become dark. Verse 24, therefore, and this is important, God gave them over. You may want to highlight those words, God gave them over. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
So as they exchange God's truth for a lie and they worship that which God has created rather than worshiping the creator, God says, I will not force myself upon you. If you choose this, I will give you over to this life. And so he gives them over and it gets worse. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over. There it is again, highlight it. To degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So he's saying the sensuality becomes perversion, and as people move away from God, their heart gets darker and darker, and they start looking for anything that will somehow satisfy them and give them a sense of purpose, and and the culture spreads with perversion. And then it goes on, verse 28, um, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. That's the third time. God gave them over. And this time, what does he give them over to? A depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. He gave them over to a depraved mind. The word depraved means it doesn't work for its intended purpose. Okay? What is the intended purpose of the human mind? To know and worship the living God. That's the primary purpose for your mind. And it's broken. As you walk away from God, suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth, suppressing the truth, walking in darkness, in the futility of your mind, your heart is darkened, and you can't even make sense out of what is obviously true. Now, I went through all of that, and it goes on, and we could read more, and it talks about how not only do they do these things, but they strongly support those who do them, so that a whole culture shifts, and that perversion is celebrated... And godlessness is celebrated, and that becomes the standard which is considered moral. Could you imagine living in a culture like that? And that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 4. Because it was there in Ephesians 4 that we saw this darkened heart and futile mind and all of this language that is so harsh and, and potentially offensive. Listen, he's not coming down on these people. He's explaining their situation to us. Because we, who are Christians, tend to be judgmental. Amen. We tend to look down upon others, especially those who are caught up in sin and certain types of sin, and we go... You, you loser, I don't want anything to do with you. And we, we tend to separate ourselves from these people. And what is he telling us? He's telling us, that's who you were. Some of us have forgotten who we were. Some of us have been Christians for so long and we're so used to hanging out in the church that we have forgotten what it was like to have an absolute emptiness in our heart and be striving after something and never able to catch it. We've forgotten the things that we used to do to try to meet those desires and needs in our own lives. We've forgotten the things that we used to drink that never satisfied, so we had to drink more. We've forgotten the things we used to smoke, and we never were satisfied, so we had to smoke more of it. We've forgotten the way that we used to go from person to person, relationship to relationship, thinking if that would just fulfill me. We thought about going after money, and we tried to make it that way, but it didn't fulfill. We've forgotten what it was like to be so empty on the inside that you'll try anything. 
And God is telling us that's still where people are who don't know Jesus. And so we who know Jesus have got to be the light in that darkness. It's not our place to judge and to condemn. God is the judge. Our place is to love and show grace and preach the gospel and introduce them to the Jesus who gave us the answer. Amen? That's where we need to be. Don't forget, it's, it's not them that are being condemned here. It's those Christians who tend to say, no, I believe the Apostles' Creed. I can talk to you all day about right doctrine. It's just that my life hasn't changed at all. And if that's the case, it's us that he's talking to. And what Paul is addressing in Ephesians 4 is that tendency in us. We, we who have been born again, we ought to walk differently. It's as simple as that. Paul is saying, and he says, affirming together with Christ. In case Paul's apostleship is not authority enough, he goes, yeah, this is Jesus teaching too. That we who know Jesus must not keep living the way we used to live when we didn't know Jesus. Go to Ephesians 4, pick it up in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. He's going to get in our face and tell us to live differently. We were created in Jesus Christ to live a new life. Do you remember that back in chapter 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them? That we should walk in them. Not know about them, not affirm them, not say amen to them when the pastor talks about them. We should walk in them. There are, there are ways that people walk when they want to be like Jesus. And those ways involve things like compassion and grace and generosity and courage and truth and faithfulness. And those things ought to be the things that people see when they look at people who name the name of Jesus. We ought to be in the likeness of Jesus. That's the life that Jesus died to give us. But too many of us have been crippled by lies that we have believed about spiritual life. And what I'm going to do with the rest of my time is I'm going to give you just three, three lies that are extremely common that a whole bunch of Christians believe. And we're going to expose them so that we can look at what it really means to walk with Jesus. Lie number one, spiritual growth happens automatically. Man, when I say that, there's a whole bunch of people going, no, no, that's a lie. And yet when we watch those who name the name of Christ across the church, okay, let's just say everybody at Grace Fellowship is better than this, obviously, okay? But those other Christians out there who who name the name of Christ, and yet they think that somehow they went forward at the Billy Graham crusade, and, and they had this strong sense in their heart, and they really meant it when they prayed and asked Jesus into their life, and they believe the truth, and they come on Sundays, and they say amen, and they take notes, and that's as far as it goes for them. And, and they wonder why they're not becoming spiritually mature. Guys, that's just not how maturity works. That's not how it works in any walk of life. 
Think about anything that you are really, really good at. And ask yourself this, was it hard to get good? You know, look at the musicians who are up here every week and the, the talent that is displayed for us. And they're, they're just, you know, I, I was watching Emily today standing behind this keyboard and she's just doing this. I'm like, how do you do that? I can tell you how she does it because I've known her since she was a kid. Practice. Practice. That's the only way. You have to work at it. I can tell you this. I have been playing golf for over 40 years and I still stink at it. And I mean stink at it. I'm not kind of good at golf. I'm terrible at it. And I've been trying for 40 years. And I'm telling you guys, I have a cool golf bag. It's because there's UCLA Bruins all over it. I have great golf clubs. I got the golf shoes and the hats and the whole deal. And I put those clubs in my shoulder and I walk from the parking lot up to the golf course. I do it all the time. I walk right past that practice area. I'm not sure what they do there, but I walk right by there. And I go up to the first tee, and I swing the club, and I hit the ball in the woods, just like I always do. And I've been doing it for 40 years. You know, every now and then, I'll hit a ball so far to the left that when I go looking for it, I'm near the driving range. And then I look, and I, I see people over there, and they're just hitting great shots. They just practiced. They just practice. And yet, we think that somehow we're going to have spiritual maturity without doing any of the work. We think that somehow we become spiritually mature by osmosis. A whole bunch of us have our Bibles right on the nightstand next to our bed, right? So that while we're sleeping, maybe it'll get into there. <laughs> maybe put it under your pillow. Who knows? If you get a closer proximity, maybe you'll grow spiritually that way. Of course you won't. You're going to have to actually pick it up and read it, and you might have to look up some stuff and ask some questions and take some notes and do some work. But you don't become mature in Christ without any effort. And, and listen, based on the behavior of a lot of Christians I know, I would have to say that some of us are just not very serious about being mature in Christ. I'm certainly not serious about being a good golfer. It shows. But we say we want to live an abundant life. We say we want to be pleasing to God, that we want to be mature in Christ. Well, guess what? If we want to grow, there are some things we're going to have to lay aside. And that's what he tells us. There are some things that we're going to have to lay aside. And you don't need me to lecture you here. I know this. You don't need me to point out to you all the things that are wrong in your life, that habits that you have that really don't please God, because you know about them already, Right? Whether, whether they're relationships that are just um, toxic for you, whether they're habits or addictions or attitudes, whether it's bitterness or hatred or jealousy, whatever it is that you hold on to, that you know you're holding on to it, and, and it flares up now and then, and then you ignore it and ignore it and think it's going to get better, he says you're going to have to lay that stuff aside. It has no place in your life. There's no way you're going to become more mature in Christ unless you lay that stuff aside. And there's some things you're going to have to put on. He says, put on the new man. You can't just decide that you're going to grow spiritually and then not do anything about it. You're going to have to make worship a part of your life. And you go, well, you're preaching the choir. We're here. We came to worship. This is not what I mean. I'm talking about a lifestyle that says Jesus is first in everything. And I live for his glory. 
You're going to have to make prayer a priority in your life. You say, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy. Listen, if you're busy, you're too busy not to pray. We've got to find time for that which is most important. You say, you're going to have to put on things like generosity and kindness. You're going to have to put things on like service and ministry and devotion to others. You're going to have to do it. If you don't do it, you won't grow. It's that simple. It doesn't matter how much I preach or how well I preach. You're not going to grow. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Now, probably a lot of you have noticed this, um, but in the last year or so, I've really, really gotten in good physical condition. And I know that some of you are embarrassed and you don't want to come up and say anything about it, but I know you're thinking, how does he do that? Like, how do you get a body like that? And so, so I'm going to just share my secret with you. About a year ago, I bit the bullet and went down and joined a gym. And, and it's awesome. I, I love my gym. It is so cool. In fact, I go every week. I, I go uh, every Friday for about an hour and a half. And, and I have the same routine. It's really, I've gotten really good at it. I go in, I go to the locker room, and I get changed. I get my shorts and my shirt and my towel and my water bottle and my headband. And I do all that. I don't have anything else to keep the sweat out of my eyes. So I, I do all of that, and then I do the same thing. I go to every single machine in the, in the building. I start here, I go to this machine, and I start to chat with the guy who's on the machine. I ask him about his week and tell him how my week was and see how he's doing. And then I go to the next machine. I talk to the girl on that machine, and I tell her about my week, see how she's doing, check up on her kids and all that. And then I go to the next machine, and I don't stop till I've been to every machine in the place. I have made so many friends at the gym. It's incredible. I love these people. And there's another thing at my gym that I totally love. The music is so inspiring. I mean, you walk in, it's like, dum, 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 and you're like, yeah, I could lift anything. I love that music. Sometimes I walk out of that place just humming the music in my head, you know, and it stays with me all day. I love the music at my gym. And I also love this. They have personal trainers there. These guys are all like yoked with muscles, and their name is like Sven, and they, they're like, hello, I am Sven, and he tell you how to pick up the weights and all that. Man, I listen to whatever those guys say. Look at them. They obviously know. These guys are built like Adonis. Of course they know what you should do. They're experts. So when, they're, when they have a class on physical fitness or something, I sit in and listen to everything. And when it's done and I've been to every machine and I've met all the people and I've listened to the music and I listen to the experts, then I go back to the locker room, put my street clothes back on, and I come to work. And that's how I got this body. Awesome, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, if I took that approach, that would be stupid. An hour and a half of just going someplace and talking to people, listening to the music and listening to the experts, like that's going to make you healthy? Are you getting my point? There's a whole bunch of Christians who are given an hour and a half a week on Sundays and they come and they love the people and they talk and they check out how everybody's week was and they share and they have fellowship and they love the music and they just go, oh, the music is so inspiring, it's great. And when the expert gets up to talk about how to be a more mature Christian, they listen to every word and then they go put their street clothes back on and go back out into the world and act like nothing happened. You can't get mature by osmosis. Line number two, 
God is the one who makes us grow spiritually. And some of you are like, I don't know if I even want to write that down. I don't think that is a lie. God, in fact, Pastor Doug's always telling us God is the one who makes us grow spiritually. Like, without God's grace, we could never even know him. Without God's grace, we could never understand the truth. If God doesn't transform us from the inside out, we'll never be changed. Doug is always talking about this, and now he says it's a lie. No, listen carefully. God is the one who makes us grow spiritually is not actually the case. Here's why. It is true that God is the source of all the power that we need to be transformed. And it is true that God offers us that all by his grace and without charge. But it is not true that we can just sit there, soak it in, and be transformed. We have to actually cooperate with God. Christy and I have three kids, and they're all adults now, and most of you know them. And I'm so proud of them. You know, I could hold them up as trophies and go, look how good God is. But when they were little, they all went through the same stage. Every one of them went through the same stage, and I remember it. And, and you know, it's just shameful. It's just embarrassing. They was all around the age of one, and it was around the time they were trying to learn to walk. And every one of them at the age of one looked like a moron when they tried to walk. All of them. And they were like bumping into tables, falling on their butts. They were just embarrassing to be around. I'm like, what is wrong with these people? They can't even walk. They got bruises all over themselves. They're falling down all the time. Like, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they walk? Here's the deal. Christy and I gave them life. Our DNA is in their blood. We fed them and housed them and clothed them and encouraged them and gave them everything they needed. They would have died if it wasn't for us. And yet there came a time when it was time to learn to walk. We couldn't do it for them. They had to do it themselves. And all we could do is cheer them on and, and, you know, dust off their knees. That's all we could do. And I am proud to say they're all in their 20s now, and they're all excellent walkers. <laughs> Kimmy falls down quite a bit, actually, but the other two are excellent walkers. <laughs> to be fair, right? I think it's the heels, but whatever. Listen, God makes it possible for us to grow spiritually but there's some stuff we got to do. Some of us have just decided we're going to take the, the sort of um, passenger route. We're just going to sit and watch, and we're going to expect God to do something. God has done much, and he will do much more as we cooperate with him. He will change our lives. Look at verse 22 again. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. You have to do that which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seed, and that you, who? You put on the new self. You have to lay aside the old self. You have to put on the new self. You have to decide those habits aren't going to be in my life anymore. You have to decide I'm going to create new habits that are going to help me become a man or a woman of God. You have to decide that and you have to do it. And that's one of the reasons he puts us together in the body of Christ so we could join arms and lift one another up and do it together. Because you know what? It's hard. It is hard. It's hard to say no to those temptations that continue to come our way and we think that we need those things so badly and we give in. It is hard to make new habits in our lives where we're going to make God's word and prayer and worship and generosity our priorities. It's hard, but we got to do it. And it's up to you to do it. 
And the cool thing is that when you do it, look at verse 23, that you will be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So you lay aside the old self, you put on the new self, but in between there is verse 23, you will be renewed. You don't have to renew yourself. That's God's part. You will be renewed. As you cooperate with God, you become the person God wants you to be. Let me hurry on to give you the third lie. If I just knew more, I'd be more mature. If I just knew more, I'd be more mature. And that kind of sounds right, especially after all I've been saying about truth and how important it is to know the truth and you've got to read your Bibles and all that kind of stuff. And we just talked about that last Sunday. But even though all that is true, I am here to tell you spiritual growth is not simply about learning more. If we had time, we'd look it up. So put it in your notes. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. That's a whole section where he talks about being doers of the word and not merely hearers only. He says, if you're only a hearer of the word and you nod your head and say amen and write good notes, you are deluding yourselves. But the ones who do the word, they're the ones who are actually living in faith. It's not enough to have right doctrine. If you're not living it out, the evidence tells me you're spiritually dead. And you and I have to actually put off some old junk and we have to put on some new behaviors. That's why James says in James 4.17, to the one who knows what to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Not enough to know. You got to do something about it. Those are some of the lies we believe. But the truth is that you can lay aside the old self. Jesus has already made you new if you're a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's already done that. But you have to cooperate. You got to lay aside the old self. You have to put on the new self. That's what it takes. It's pretty amazing. When you see a genuine believer gradually grow into a man or woman of God. It's an incredible privilege for me. I've been pastoring this church for like 27 years. There's a bunch of people who are adults in this church who I was in the hospital room with them right after they were born. And I've gotten a chance to watch some of you grow from little baby Christians into godly, mature men and women of God. It's awesome. It's one of the greatest things about being a pastor. But I'll be honest. There's a bunch of people I've known over all these years also. And they've been here on Sunday mornings. And they've come to the events that we've had. And they're pretty much in the same place spiritually they were 20 years ago. And that's heartbreaking. See, God is in the transformation business. He takes what is broken and makes it new. He takes what is dead and makes it alive. He takes what is going the wrong direction and moves it to the right direction. God is in the transformation business, and your life is next. Are you ready? Let's stand together and pray.